before we look further and reflect further on this passage together, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray for your help this morning in understanding your word, that it would speak in a living and active way to our hearts. Encourage us to live lives of faith, uh, trusting in your power to work in the present as we look forward to that final day when your power will work wonderfully to transform and totally renew the whole cosmos. So help us to keep living by faith and trusting in your power to work in our world and our lives. Amen. Well, it will not have escaped your notice that we live in a highly multicultural city. Uh, when I look at people who are steeped in their own religion and culture, I struggle to believe that it would be possible for them to come to faith in Christ. It almost seems like a hopeless situation. Uh, Kamesh Shankaran grew up in a city located in south of India. Uh, his family was devotedly Hindu. And his commitment to Hinduism grew deeper through his studies at a boarding school uh, run by a prominent religious leader. Uh, Kamesh excelled in his studies uh, beyond all expectations. Uh, in his 20s, Kamesh secured funding to study a PhD uh, in aerospace engineering at Princeton in America. Uh, when he came to America, he harbored a deep disdain for Christian culture and moral values as represented by Western culture. Uh, compared to the teachings of Hinduism, they seemed incredibly lax, if not debauched. And his passion for Hinduism continued at Princeton, where he became a leader of the Hindu Students Association. Uh, what hope could there ever be for a man like Kamesh to come to faith in Christ? Is it possible that he could become a member of God's kingdom? It seemed like a hopeless situation. Well, 2,000 years earlier, a crippled woman in the Middle East seemed to also be in a hopeless situation. Yet Christ's kingdom power was about to be exercised in her life in a way that would totally and dramatically transform it. Look at verse 10. On a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues, and a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years, and she was bent over and could not straighten up at all. Now, it's likely that she had a condition that caused the bones of her spine to fuse into a rigid mash, and so she was permanently stooped, staring at the ground, and she had suffered this way for 18 long years. But we also learn that this woman's disability had a supernatural dimension. She was the victim of spiritual attack. She was crippled by Satan's cruelty. You see, of course, Satan hates God and those made in God's image. And Satan delights to distort, to disfigure, to disable, to deceive and to destroy. But with the advent of Jesus... The kingdom of God has come in power, and the domain of Satan is now under threat. Uh, without any request for help or any call to demonstrate faith, Jesus takes the initiative to heal her. The exercise of kingdom power was an act of grace, verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her forward and said to her, woman, 
you are set free from your infirmity. Then he put his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. The woman was crippled by Satan's cruelty, but is now cured by Christ's compassion. And in this woman's deliverance lay the seed of Satan's defeat and the glory of God's kingdom. And she understandably responds in praise to God. But not everybody was rejoicing in the synagogue that day. In stark contrast to the woman's joy, the synagogue ruler responds with indignant rebuke. Verse 14. Indignant because Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath, the synagogue ruler said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. How tragic. All this man could think of was rules and regulations. And that was the filter through which he viewed the Sabbath. And it was the filter for his whole life and his approach to his religion. You see, his understanding of the kingdom was very different to that of Jesus. And his theology was very different to that of Jesus. For him, the kingdom was for moral, upright people who kept the rules, not for repentant sinners. His belief system was not the gospel, but religious moralism. He had no delight in grace, but opposed it. He was blind to God's gracious heart that took the initiative to save those weighed down by brokenness and Satan. For him, the parable of the prodigal son would seem like a strange, strange story. He displayed the callous indifference of a judgmental, proud religious heart. But Jesus was not about to leave this unaddressed. Verse 15. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, don't each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water. Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? His heart was hard and hypocritical, but it was now exposed. For him, it was permissible to care for animals on the Sabbath, but not to care for people. But the Sabbath was never intended to prohibit works of necessity or mercy. Hence why it was fittingly appropriate for the woman to be healed on the Sabbath. As Jesus had said elsewhere, and recorded in Mark 2, verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, God created the Sabbath for the welfare of humanity. How presumptuous of this religious leader to rebuke the Lord of glory for carrying out a ministry of mercy on such a day. In our spiritual health series, uh, we thought about the Sabbath as a day to desist from work and to delight in God. But it is not just a day for our own spiritual refreshment. We see here that the Sabbath has a communal element to it. It is a day also for acts of mercy to refresh not just ourselves, but others. Uh, the Sabbath is a day for giving comfort to those who are grieving. The Sabbath is a day for showing kindness to outsiders, to children, to the elderly. 
at the Sabbath as a day for visiting the sick and the infirm and for befriending the friendless and feeding the homeless. And so the scene in the synagogue closes with two contrasting reactions to Christ's healing and his teaching. Verse 17. When he, that is Jesus, said this, all his opponents were humiliated, but the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. We actually see here a microcosm of the scene on that final day when Christ returns and his kingdom is finally consummated in all its power and all its glory. Uh, those who have opposed God's kingdom of grace will be humiliated. But those who have embraced it by faith will be delighted. In Christ's wonderful acts during his earthly ministry, uh, he pushed back the boundaries of Satan's domain. And on that final day, the last day, the most wonderful act of all will be enacted. Satan and all evil will be eternally banished. In that synagogue on that day, the kingdom of God had advanced in a small but significant way. A woman whom Satan had kept bound for 18 long years had been freed. And such is the nature and such is the growth of God's kingdom. It starts small but its end result will be huge, cosmic even, at verse 18. Then Jesus asked, what is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his garden. It grew and it became a tree and the birds of the air perched in its branches. Uh, the kingdom grows through God's power, working unseen in people's hearts. Uh, verse 20. Again, he asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked all through the dough. You see, God's kingdom grows unstoppably because it has the power of God within it. It grows by God's life-giving grace that absolutely nothing can stop. Is that your view of the kingdom? From a small and seemingly insignificant beginning, God's kingdom grows, at times invisibly and also imperceptibly. And often it would seem against all odds and against all human expectation. And it grows and it grows until it reaches all nations with its transforming power. So let's think about how this applies to us today. And there are two particular strands I'd like to dig down on together. Firstly, the danger of missing the kingdom of God. And secondly, the danger of a powerless kingdom of God. So let's think about the first of those, the danger of missing the kingdom of God. The synagogue ruler had a very different theology to that of Jesus. His view of God was probably in our modern sense was more Islamic than Christian. Uh, for him, uh, God was the judge who gives a scorecard for the rule keeper. 
Uh, for him, God wasn't a father who forgives the humble repentant. And as a result, uh, the synagogue ruler was in danger of completely missing the kingdom of God. And many people today reject Christianity because they have a skewed theology, if you like. They have a skewed and wrong view as to what Christianity actually is, just like the synagogue ruler. Uh, this week, I was listening to a talk by a pastor of the church in the city in New York. Uh, his name is John Tyson. Uh, he's actually from Adelaide. Uh, John was recounting how he had a woman in his church who was uh, super antagonistic to the gospel. Uh, she was absolutely unrelenting in her assaults and her criticisms of Christianity. Uh, so one day, uh, John said to her, can you just hang on for a second? Everything you are critiquing has nothing to do with what I believe. And he said, can I have five minutes just to share the gospel with you? So she gave him five, and this is what he said. He said, the world was created with love. You were created with purpose. Your sin has separated you from your creator. And yet he has done everything in his power to reconcile you to him. And indeed, that reconciliation is a free gift that he offers to you through Jesus' death on the cross. And if you accept it, he will put his spirit in you and give you new life. He will give you a new identity, a new community, a new family, a new future, a new hope. He will, he will take away all of your shame. All your inner angst will be dealt with and peace like a river will fill your life. You will have power to please him and to obey him. And when this life of purpose is over, you are going to rule and reign forever as a king and a priest in a new heaven and a new earth. Well, the woman paused for a moment and then she said, I don't think that many people know that. And such is the reality for many people today. The reality is that not many people know that. For them, uh, the Christianity they think they know is very different to the real Christianity. Um, for many people today, they have been duped and deceived by Satan. Uh, many believe that Christianity is all about just rule keeping and being moral. And as a result, they never hear the wonderful news of God's kingdom grace. Now, when I heard that story, uh, I was encouraged not to remain silent. Uh, I am spurred on by that story to be ready for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus with people and to be ready where the opportunity presents itself to, to challenge their misconceptions of Christianity. Uh, the truth is that God's kingdom is growing and God's spirit is powerfully at work in people's hearts. And he works in their hearts to remove the blinkers from their eyes, to challenge their wrong ideas and to draw them to Christ. And like yeast, God's spirit and God's power are at work invisibly in people's hearts. And so it means we shouldn't be disheartened and we shouldn't give up or be cowed into silence when it comes to sharing our faith. So if the first danger is missing the kingdom of God, then the second danger is of a powerless kingdom of God. 
Now, eschatology is a fancy theological word. It refers to the final judgment and the renewal of all things. Eschatology comes from the Greek word eschaton, which actually means last. So eschatology is the study of the last things. In other words, what happens when Jesus returns? Uh, the judgment and the re renewal of all things and the new creation and the new heavens and new earth. Now, there are two dangers in eschatology, uh, what is called an over-realized eschatology and an under-realized eschatology. Now, what on earth does that mean? Let me explain. An over-realized eschatology means that people claim for the present what is only promised for the last day, for the future. Uh, Pentecostalism would be an example of this. Uh, often they claim that by faith we can be assured of healing from sickness now. That it is something we can claim as a right now. However, the Bible teaches that it is only when Jesus returns that we will be healed from all our sickness. Now, let me be clear. Uh, God can and God does heal today, but we can't claim it as a right in every instance. That is what's called over-realized eschatology. We're claiming what is promised for that last day in the present in a way which the Bible doesn't allow us to do. However, uh, there is a danger of falling off the other side of the horse. We can slip into what is called under-realized eschatology. This is where we throw the baby out with the bathwater. This is where we have little or no expectation of God being powerfully at work in the present whilst we wait for the last day. And as a result, we become pessimistic and cynical. And yet, the power of God is at work in this world now to grow his kingdom. And like yeast, the power of God is at work in unseen ways. And it's not just, therefore, a big bang on the last day. God's power is changing and transforming us. His spirit indwells us and works in us and through us and in other people in the world. Remember those wonderful verses in Ephesians 3, verse 20. It says this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. Our home group, our midweek study group, is studying the wonderful book by Paul Miller called A Praying Life. And Paul Miller helpfully identifies two conditions which erode our motivation to pray. It's what he calls, firstly, defeated weariness, which can then lead to a second condition, condition cynicism. Uh, defeated weariness is where we start to lose our belief in the power of prayer. And as a result of disappointments in this life, uh, we build up scar tissue from our frustrations. And we get to the point where we really don't want to expose ourselves to any more disappointments. And fear constrains us. And fear strangles our prayer life. And if unchecked, this defeated weariness can morph into cynicism. Uh, even if we get an answer to prayer, our initial reaction is, oh, well, maybe it would have happened anyway. Or even worse, uh, we stop praying because we stop believing that it makes a difference. 
Uh, that is one expression of an under-realized eschatology. Another expression is of that is where we just don't believe anymore that God can convert people who are steeped in maybe very different religions and very different cultures and backgrounds. But the reality is that we live in the overlap of the ages. We have been given the spirit who dwells with and works in the world. Uh, Tracy and myself have a wonderful uh, indomitable Christian friend, uh, and every time he calls me, he keeps reminding me that he and his wife are praying for Tracy to be healed from her diabetes and her narcolepsy. Now, to be honest, when I hear this, my response is actually disbelief. I don't for a minute believe that their prayers will be positively answered. And I actually have, if I'm honest, no inclination to pray such a prayer myself. I know that diabetes and narcolepsy are incurable chronic conditions. You see, I don't have the faith to pray for that. But is that because I have an under-realized eschatology? Of course, my theology allows that God could heal Tracy today if he so chose, but I don't believe that he actually will. And actually, I'm in the territory of uh, defeated weariness and cynicism. I've gone too far to the other extreme. And I wonder if, many, if in many different ways uh, we struggle with disbelief that God is still at work in us and in the world. It may be a chronic health condition. It may be our struggle with a besetting sin that seems to keep having this mighty powerful grip over us. It may be the silent pessimism that such and such a person could never really ever become a Christian. And so uh, we stop praying and we stop expecting the spirit to work and we lose sight of the spirit and we lose sight of his enabling and his help. And in the end, Maybe we just start looking solely to our own abilities and our own strengths and our own efforts to live the Christian life. And we start to think that evangelism is just down to us and our powers of persuasion or our ability to explain the gospel. And yet, the reality is that God's power works in tandem with us. That God's power is at work to grow his kingdom today. And as much as it was in the beginning of the first century, when the fledgling church sent out its first missionaries to the ends of the earth. God's kingdom of grace grows like a small, tiny mustard seed and like yeast in dough. It is an unstoppable power for growth and change. And it's so strong that we all never to despair about our own feeble efforts. Well, at Princeton, the devout Hindu, uh, Kamesh Sankaran, uh, struck up a close friendship with a fellow PhD student who happened to also be a Christian. And Kamesh recounts what happens next in his own words. And he said this, on a few occasions that the cross of Christ came up in my casual conversations with this Christian friend. And sensing that I was missing something, my friend explained that Jesus Christ died 
bearing our sins to reconcile us to God. And this was something that I'd never heard before. Naturally, it offended me. I was a deeply religious person, someone diligently striving to be good. How could my friend think that anyone, much less someone like me, was a sinner in need of salvation? Uh, yes, I had problems, but I wasn't capable of fixing them. But wasn't I capable of fixing them myself? Why would I need Jesus to bear my sins? I was curious. And so to investigate the evidence for this explanation of the cross, I started to read the Bible. Uh, the parable of the prodigal son did not sit right with me, in part because God was not supposed to be like the profligate father in that story. He was supposed to reward good moral conduct, but not irresponsible religion, rebellion. In reality, I identified more closely with the other son who did not seem to need grace. And then in a brief but decisive period of my life, God exposed my false sense of self-sufficiency, which I had based on financial prosperity, on academic success, and a strong relationship with my family. And in short order, I experienced unexpected and unexplained failures in each of these areas, financial, academic, and relational. Uh, the blows came from different directions, but their cumulative effect was devastating by removing the frail crutches on which my life was built, God exposed the reality of my profound weakness, especially my utter inability to fix relational brokenness. I was in more pain than I had imagined possible, and I was devoid of the props on which I was accustomed to rest. Knowing no other way out, I decided to end my own life and in the midst of this darkness, a voice within me spoke. This is why Jesus had to die for you. It came from nowhere. But at that moment, my brokenness pointed to a greater brokenness in my relationship with God. I had nothing to lose. And so I decided to ask my friend if I could attend church with him. My call came on a Sunday morning just as he and his family were leaving the house to attend worship. That morning, I heard the gospel, and I responded with a broken and an open heart, and I put my faith in Christ. You see, the kingdom of God grows unstoppably. The kingdom power is like a mustard seed that grows into a tree. It's like yeast that works its way through the dough. So let's not slip into a defeated weariness or cynicism. Let's not think that we live the Christian life just in our own power and strength. Let's remember that we work in tandem with God's spirit who dwells within, who dwells within to change us and who works through us in reaching out to others and convicting them in their hearts of their need for Christ and in extending the boundaries of God's kingdom wonderfully in this world. And so let's keep praying. Let's not be cowed into silence. Let's keep praying by faith, recognizing that God can do the miraculous in the present. And indeed, even yesterday, I prayed for the first time for a long time that God would heal Tracy from her incurable diseases. And who knows? He may, he may, he may not. 
Either way, I will trust him by faith, but I'll keep asking and I'll keep trusting him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, help us to live by faith, uh, to keep trusting your kingdom power. Let us not slip into uh, defeated weariness. Let us not fall into the trap of uh, an over-realized es eschatology where we uh, demand that you act now, uh, as you have promised to do on that final day. But let us not slip off the other side of the horse and have no expectation of your power to work in the present. Let us walk by faith and let us trust your spirit that works within and look and pray to your spirit to work in us and through us to your glory and our benefit and our transformation. Amen.